You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, good morning and thanks for joining with us. Keep your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 3. Will you do that with me? Do you have your Bibles? Hold them up if you will. Hold your device up, your Bible up. That's a great thing. Just because I got a screen here next to me doesn't mean you don't need a Bible. You need God's Word. Well, I hope you'll celebrate with me. Tracy and I will be gone this upcoming week as we celebrate 25 years of marriage. She was a child bride. She was a child bride back in the day. It was illegal in most states for her to get married. And she would tell you that she's still married to a child after all these years. Also, let me say to you, it's my privilege. This is the eighth anniversary this upcoming week of me serving as your pastor. And thank you for that privilege. It's a joy to pastor you guys. So thank you. Yeah. Today marks the second step. And I just want to invite you to give me your attention for just a second. This marks the second step in our resuming normal activities as a church. Our children's ministry, preschool, and elementary ages are back together. We're looking forward to the 12th of July and back to the church Sunday when we gather together in our small groups, our Bible fellowship groups. But let me say something to you today. Because as your pastor, if you call me your pastor, I need you to listen to me. If you do not have an underlying condition and you're not above 70, we're in a dangerous territory. My fear is the coronavirus is keeping you prisoned at home on the Lord's Day. Now again, these may be strong words, but if you don't have an underlying condition and you're under the age of 70, you need to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's Day. Amen. And my, my fear for many of us as we worship online during this season is you're sporadic at best. Having been a pastor for 20 plus years and watching people's worship attendance, it's sporadic at best in this age when they attend in person. You need to recalibrate, and I want to call upon you to rethink. If you're a mother or father with little ones in the home, you're setting a habit. And I believe the habit we need to set is on the Lord's day, we'll be in the Lord's house. Again, I understand. I believe in science, and I have a son that has asthma, so I understand these issues to some degree. But my fear as your pastor is that you're setting a precedence. And as you set that precedence and that habit, it could be highly detrimental to you in the days to come. I want to come out of this coronavirus stronger than when we got into it. I want us as a people of God in these wicked times we live in to get into the house of the Lord. This is not a time to sit at home and Netflix and binge watch Amazon. We got enough of that mess going on already. What we need is God's people studying God's Word, filling God's house with prayer. We need to be convictional people in a time when America seems to be coming unhinged. So would you please consider with me, if this is your church family, and you don't have an underlying condition, and you're not above the age of 70, you're not at risk, let's see one another face-to-face next week. Can we do that? Don't write me either, please. I've got my thinking on this thing. Colossians chapter 3. Today I want to talk to you about how I can be, how can I be a better person. Colossians chapter 3. The Bible gives a tool for you and I. 
that we can improve ourselves in a powerful way. And I want us to look at this powerful weapon together. Beginning in verse 5 of Colossians 3, first, I want you to see the Bible says, don't try to be a better person. First, don't try to be a good person. Your biggest failure in life is that you think being a good person is just trying to be a good person. You're naive at best if you come into the room or you come on worship and worshiping with us that day because nothing could be further from the truth. If you think being a good person is just simply trying to be a good person, I want to say to you and suggest to you that you're naive at best because look at this. Now, in geometry, we're told the quickest point, the quickest path between two points is a straight line. Some of you passed geometry. Praise the Lord. But it, the quickest path to being a good person is not a straight line. You've got to take a detour to Calvary. Let me show you. The quickest way to repeated moral failure, the quickest way to repeated moral failure is to only try to do the right thing. In fact, verse 5, look what the text says here, beginning in verse 5. And it connects back into verse 3. In verse 3 it says, for you have died, and then it says for you to put to death. There's a connective thought here. Colossians, as we've been looking at this verse by verse, is not a fortune cookie where you pull out a little nugget. It's a sustained argument. So here's the thesis. Here's the argument from the Apostle Paul. In order for you to be a good person and put to death those deeds that you're not proud of, you've got to experience a death. Now, some of you in the room and some of you at home, may, you may think of yourself better than you should. The truth is we're all more wicked than we realize. Let me give you a little test to try this week. Everyone in the sound of my voice, let me just give you a quick little test. For one week, try the following three. Don't gossip. Don't talk bad about anybody. Can you go 24 hours doing that? Don't defend yourself. Number three, don't brag. Don't even humble brag. We'll find out next Sunday as we gather together those little tests, those three things. Don't gossip. Don't brag. Don't even humble brag. Don't just drop it in there. And don't defend yourself. The Bible calls upon us again in verse 3. We have to experience a death and to be successful in putting to death. The Bible here is communicating to us that we lack the power on our own. That's why I say don't try to be a good person. You lack the sufficient power in order to be a good person. You don't have it in you. You're called upon to do something that you don't have the inherent horsepower to make it happen. In fact, look back at verse 23, the very last sentence in the very last verse of chapter 2. Look what the Word of God says with me. You won't find it on your screen, so you actually need a copy of God's Word. Here is, look what it says here, a group of people are teaching something falsely in Colossians and they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, there seemed to be a group of people who were naive in the church. They felt to try to be a good person, all you had to do was try to be a good person. But the Bible's teaching it doesn't have the sufficient power. The word flesh in the Bible may be confusing for you. Flesh is not flesh, like human flesh. Flesh is a thermostat. Now, we're supposed to heat up to the upper 90s this week. God bless air conditioning and thermostats. Amen? Now, you have a thermostat set to self inside of you. You have a thermostat that is set to self. It wants to congratulate yourself and talk about yourself. I'm thinking here of the Toby Keith song, right? I want to talk about 
See, you guys know Toby Keith better. You know God's Word. Now look at this. <laughs> Flesh versus the Spirit. And the Bible says that even after conversion, there's the old man, there's the self. And it's this inside thermostat set for selfishness and against God. Let me try to show you this in a different direction. If you know ancient Greek mythology, then you may know something of Odysseus and him being tied to the mast. Maybe you just know that phrase, tied to the mast. Where does that come from? Well, ancient Greek mythology would teach that Odysseus, Odysseus wanted to hear the dangerous, the enchanting siren song. Ancient Greek thought said that the siren song was beautiful, it was enchanting, but it was highly dangerous. Sirens, it was thought of, was a mythical creature that would enchant sailors with a song that they couldn't get enough of. But the moment that they were drawn to the song and the ones who were singing, the ship would careen itself upon the, the bro- broken reef and all the sailors would be marooned. Odysseus wanted to hear the siren song, so he prepared to do it. This is what he did. He put wax in all the sailors' ears. And then he tied himself to the mast. And then he asked his sailors to surround him with swords drawn because he knew that the moment that he heard the siren's song, as enchanting and beautiful as it would be, he might be willing to loosen himself from the mast. And he said to his men, you must kill me at that moment. You see, Odysseus knew something that many of us don't understand. You cannot just simply try to be a good person because you don't know the power of the siren song. Leaving mythology for a minute and getting back to reality, Jesus would say it this way in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 34. Remember a few weeks ago we said the amen statements? Well, I remember them if nobody else does. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, sin is not a misdeed only. Sin is a power. Sin has a seductive power. Your sin is your ambitions, it's your lust, your ego, your pride. And the Bible says we're all sinners, every one of us, including the one who's speaking. Your sins, the Bible says, have a life of their own. They'll come looking for you. At every effort that you have to do the right thing, they will come for you. And look at this again. Slaves don't free themselves. Slaves need to be rescued. And that's why you've got to experience a death to be a better person. That's why verse 3 says, you have died in order that verse 5 says put to death. The quickest path, the quickest route between two points may be a straight line, but the quickest path to being a good person is someone who takes a detour at Calvary. What do I mean by that? You've got to understand the gospel because the gospel that Jesus Christ has covered your sins and he is actually your savior, that means that God doesn't accept you based on your efforts, but based on his accomplishments. And let me clear up a myth. Jesus died for more than just covering your sins. He died to make you powerfully holy. Let me show you. Back in the text of Colossians 3, now in verse 2, and connect it down with the words in verse 5 together. Notice what it says. In verse 2, we are told not to set, not to set our mind on things below, but to set our, thing, set our mind on things that are above, things on the earth. Do you see that? And then connect it to verse 5. Because you and I have died, many of you have died, and you've risen, and the Bible can speak of your resurrection in the past tense, even though you've not died and risen. So confident is the Bible in a Christian's future resurrection that could speak of in the past tense, put to death what is earthly. 
Now, friend, let me be careful and clear with you. If you've not died with Christ, you don't believe in Christ. Synonymous in believing in Jesus is death to yourself because conversion to Christ means death to yourself. That's what it means to be a Christian. So if today you're asking how I can be a better person, are you asking that? Well, your spouse is asking how you can be a better person, right? She is, he is. If you're going to be successful in that, you've got to get the sequence correct. Nobody, nobody starts with Mozart's symphonies without mastering Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And I had some help on this for coders. You can't build the iPhone unless you've mastered Hello World. I have no idea what that is, but they tell me that's a basic thing. Well, let me, let me do something better than that. You don't put your shoes on before your socks, right? Unless you're Danny Koontz and you don't wear socks most of the time. <laughs> but what does he know? He's an LSU fan. <laughs> but I love him greatly. Verse 13 of Colossians 1. Here's the sequence. Watch carefully here. You, don't, you get paid for this, Danny. Look at this. Christ has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. The people who best understand the nature of sin's power in the room are those of you who deal with addictions. If you've been to NA or AA, if you're that type of addictions, prescription, non-prescription, you understand the sinfulness of sin. The problem is most of those people show up on Tuesday night to church for some kind of AA meeting. The people I'm speaking to are addicted to respectable sin. But respectful sin is just as addicting as non-respectful sin. In fact, you've got to have Christ come in with bolt cutters and free you from the chains of addiction. That's what verse 13 says. So as he builds his argument, keep going in verse 12 of chapter 2. Here, again, experiencing conversion. What is conversion? Buried with Christ. There's our dead language again. In which you are also raised with him. How am I raised? Through faith in the powerful working of God. Notice it doesn't say my powerful working. The text says his powerful working. And that's why you've got to experience the new birth. That's why you've got to experience the new birth. And too many people get this out of order. They try to be a better person, but they've not experienced the new birth. The new birth says, I'm dead. You've got to experience a death to your old life if you're going to experience a new life. Because the truth is, some of you, under the sound of my voice, you're trying life without God. And some of you who are Southern Christians, you're, you're really, you've had an experience with Jesus years ago, but you're functional atheists. If we mapped out your prayer life, we mapped out your worship life, you're functioning like an agnostic, you're functioning like an atheist. You're giving lip service to God. If you're going to be powerful in being a good person, then you've got to take a hold of the weapons he's given us, the weapons of warfare. What does that look like? Well, life without God looks a lot like a wagon without wheels. You can drag a wagon without wheels for a while, but it doesn't really work, does it? Because eventually it's going to disintegrate. And your life will disintegrate without God. He is the centerpiece. He's the centerpiece. So the first piece of advice the Bible gives us, if you're going to be a good person, is don't try to be a good person. Here's the second piece of advice the Bible gives us. Try to be a good person. Don't try to be a good person, but now try to be a good person. There's two kinds of people listening and watching and worshiping together today. The first kind of person says, really, I don't need religion. I don't need a bloody cross. I don't need any of these tools. All I need to be a good person 
is to try to be a good person. If I'm going to defeat racism, if I'm going to defeat whatever demons and addictions I have in my life, if I want to be a better person, then I just aim to be a better person. Our grandparents would say, you pull yourself up by your own. Yeah. There's a second kind of person in the room. They're the kind of people that says, well, I've experienced Jesus Christ. I've had him cover my sins. It doesn't matter if I'm good. It doesn't matter if I'm good. All the grace of God, he's got me covered. And so the second group is different than the first group because they've just quit. They've just quit trying. They're a lazy, church-going people. But there's a third way. There's a third way, and it's in verse 5. Once you experience a life-changing conversion, you put the work in to be a better person. Look in verse 5. Put to death. And then he begins to tell us the kind of things we're to put to death. Four of those five, as we see, have to do with sex. And then back in verse 8, he says, put these all away. And then he lists the things I'm to put away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The truth is, so many good Christians don't try to be good. They just give themselves a pass. We're passive. We're just passive when they give ourselves a, a mulligan, if you will. If you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, put some oomph into your moral life. Nothing can substitute for caring. That's what I tell my kids when it comes to school. Nothing substitutes for caring. Putting your name at the top of the paper and actually wanting to learn. Nothing can substitute for actually putting some effort into Christianity. God forbid that we say God's grace is present, therefore I don't have to put any effort into it. You've got to put some effort into being godly. And don't make excuses for yourself. You know, the Puritans would say that all of us have a besetting sin. Now that's 15 and 1600 language for something that, what's the one thing that always gets you? If you don't know what the one thing that always gets you, and if you're married, just turn and ask your spouse right now. She knows, he knows. Yeah, you've got a spotter if you're married. If you're single, you're going to, have to find an honest person around you and say, be honest with me. But remember, again, before Christ, let's put this together now. Let's just kind of sum some pieces up. Before Christ, there was a battle. My battle was against God, and I had to lose that battle. I had to lay down my weapons of war. I needed God to win. But after, after my conversion... Now there's a civil war that's going on. There's two natures conflicting with one another. There is the self, there is the flesh, and there is the spirit. And really what's going to happen on any given day is which of these two are going to win. The Bible says I'm in a deadly feud, and if you're in Jesus Christ, you're in a deadly feud because yourself was present before your conversion and it's still with you after your conversion. What is yourself? It is an inside thermometer that's set for self. What is the flesh? It's an inside thermometer set for self. What does that look like? Well, are you demanding? Do you talk all the time? Got to have your own way? Have you ever met a jerk for Jesus? How can I spot a jerk for Jesus? Here's how you spot a jerk for Jesus. Even in Bible studies, they have to parade like a peacock their righteousness and their knowledge. They have to talk a whole bunch. If you're the leader of the discussion, you've got somebody in there, like a Scott, if you will, who just is a jerk, and you have to say, Scott, I love you, but shut your mouth so I can hear the rest of these people. But it's not just the dominant people, it's the shy people. 
If you're shy, you're too afraid of what other people think of you oftentimes. That's why you won't speak up. There needs to be real leadership from you, and you need to mute your shyness by speaking up. And your inside thermometer is set toward, your inside thermostat is set toward self. You're too worried about what everybody else thinks about you because you won't open your mouth. You've got to put some effort into being a godly person. Remember my experiment? For one week, try three things. Don't gossip. Don't talk bad about anyone. Don't brag about yourself, not even humbly. Number three, don't defend yourself. Don't defend yourself. I wonder if there's many of us in the room that can do that. The Bible talks about the moral change that happens for a believer. It uses clothes to do this. In verse 9 and verse 10, look what it does here. You've got to put off and put on. Look at verse 9. Put off vices, verse 10. Put on virtues. Always makes me think about my job in college. All of us have gone to college, had those part-time jobs. And I had a job where I was fueling airplanes. And we'd had Carthearts, and I was in southern Indiana at the time. It would get cold through the winter. And so after my work, I'd come right over to see Tracy, my wife. And there was a rule after a while. If you're going to come in this house, her mother and her, if you're going to come in this house, you're going to take those stinky clothes off in the garage. And so I'd leave all the Carthearts and all that there, and I'd come in with another set of change of clothes. You can't bring the filth can't bring the smell of diesel fuel or whatever kind of fuel that was into this house. You've got to take off and you've got to put on. If you're serious about this, if I have stirred something in you, and hopefully that's the Spirit of God, the first piece is, are you awake to this? Do you see the enemy? Years ago when my oldest son and I went hunting for the first time, I remember watching, we were hunting for deer in northwest Arkansas. And God has given deer and incredible camouflage. I could tell at that moment the only way I was going to see it is if it was moving. Can you see the enemy? Can you see your flesh? Again, if you're married, you've got a spotter. You say, well, she's not telling me, he's not telling me. Where are your conflicts about? There are no married people problems. There's only single people problems in marriage. The problems she's having with you, the problems he's having with you are problems that no other person is willing to tell you about because they don't live with you. They don't put up with your junk. That's the flesh. That's the self. That's the selfishness that's coming. Are you awake to the problem or are you asleep to it? The only way the flesh can completely dominate you is if you are asleep in the battle. If you're going to win the battle, you've got to know there's a battle. If you're in a war... And don't know that you're in a war. It's not like you're going to win the war, is it? So today is a call by God. He sent me here to wake you up. What should I, you be woke up to? Look in verse 5. Sexual morality, impurity, impassion, or passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Four of the five there have to do with sexual sin. Now when Paul wrote this, he wrote it to an ancient Roman colony, the city of Colossus in the Lycus Valley. What was the sexual ethics of ancient Rome and ancient Greece? You don't have to do an investigation. Just ask yourself, what's the American 
thought about sex today, and you've got the very same thing. Christians, did you know that the Christian sex ethic won 2,000 years ago? Everybody was doing it. I had a legit Roman wife, and I had a non-legit Roman wife. Everybody was practicing that. Christians treat sex differently. That's the first thing our Bible says here. In fact, look at verse 5, this word right here, sexual morality. See that word? That's the word we get for pornography. If you're going to be serious about following Jesus, pornography has got a big, big deal. And one of the crises here, and Satan's really working, he's working overtime during this pandemic, is that so many people are turning on pornography, and it's killing America. We want to protest. Racism's terrible. It's awful. But pornography is killing us. If you want to treat a woman right, and God knows we need a revival in treating women right, you will get rid of pornography. Much of the actors in that stuff are not there willingly. They're sex lives. Secondly, do you know why rape? Do you know that there's a sexual assault every 73 seconds in America? Wow. Do you know why that's so prevalent? Because they're ramping up on pornography. It's not just an outside-the-church problem. It's an inside-the-church problem. Men and women both. If we're going to be serious about following Jesus and being a better person, then we're going to have to rid our computers of pornography. We're going to have to put filters on our devices. And if you're a dad and if you're a mom, you need to take that seriously. The challenge of our day and time is that every device in our home seems to have Internet, and so you have to chase it down like you're an IT person when you walk home. You've got to know what the Xbox and the PlayStation and all the other back devices are. Because if you don't, Junior and Sally are going to watch that for about a decade, and one day they're going to trade their I do's, and they're going to bring that into marriage, and they're going to keep it a secret and a lie, and it is deadly. 20 years of pastoring tells me it is deadly. If you want to treat women right, and if you've got a daughter, husbands, you need to get rid of this. You need to block some channels, get rid of some magazines, and you'll never defeat this in secret. 20 years of pastoring tells me you will never defeat it in secret. You have to have an ally. Husbands, if you're married in the room and you call yourself a Christian, you're the best ally you've got is the woman you said I do to. Tell her what's going on in your marriage. Tell her what you're looking at in secret. Because the truth is, the self, the flesh, is a zombie. And it comes through conversion, and it will rear its ugly head. And you've got to kill it. You've got to keep killing it. Your old life will follow you. So number one, you've got to recognize there's a battle. Secondly, you've got to stop rationalizing your sins. Some of you have given your sins a nice name. Well, I get my feelings hurt pretty easily. Okay, that's called bitterness. Well, I'm just very, very concerned about my children and my family. You're eating up with anxiety. That's what that's called. Give it the name that it is. Why is it that you call it a spade in somebody else, but you soften it with you? Why do we do that? The flesh. I rationalize my sins, but I demonize you for your sins. Do you see that? And so we've got to put off, and then we've got to put on. Verse 8, some of the things we're taking off, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Here's the things I'm putting on in verse 12 and verse 13. Compassionate hearts. 
kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing one with one another, forgiving one another. Let me close with this. We as America are on a track right now to be a better person. We're trying to defeat some things in our nation. And we're greatly concerned. We're protesting. And oftentimes when there's a school shooting, the pro-faith, which oftentimes is the pro-gun crowd, will say, well, we need to pray about this. Then the anti-gun crowd, and oftentimes maybe the anti-faith crowd says, we've got to do more than pray. There's nothing wrong with that sentence. But Jesus said we don't talk by faith. We walk by faith. Faith is a powerful thing. In fact, Jesus said this, the faith as small the side of a mustard seed can move a... That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Friend, we don't need people who are professing Christians who are talking by faith. We need people who are genuine Christians who are walking by faith. And what they profess on Sunday... They put into life on Monday and following. Faith is a powerful action. Earlier today, I read the obituary of a mother whom I never met, one of our members, a man about my age, sweet woman, 50, 60 years of marriage, room mom. She loved to cook and clean and be a mom. I emailed back, I said, what a profound thing you've got, a good mother for decades. How many people within this zip code of 76180 would trade anything for a mother or a father like that? What fueled decades of long of service in a great marriage and a great mother? You know what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is powerful. It's not talking by faith, it's walking by faith. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.